0: This is episode number 346 with Mark Randolph of The Founder Podcast.
1: What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating fascinating exploration of human potential. Now, 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 The Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help.
0: Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Before we start today's episode, I just want to let you know that our goal at Founder is to help entrepreneurs succeed however we can by giving away high quality content in the form of interviews, blog posts, podcasts, YouTube videos, you name it. We put out so much content to help you. And another interesting project that we're working on right now is partnering with world-class founders like Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Reel, and so many more to teach crucial skills like negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. Hey Founder fam, hope you're doing well. Nathan Chen here, CEO and publisher of Founder magazine. Welcome back to the show. Today's guest, we have Mark Randolph, who's the co-founder of a company you might have heard of called Netflix. i tell you what, it was such a great conversation. I can't wait to share this with you guys. We go through a lot. Uh, we talk about, the Netflix origin story, which is crazy how he started it. Uh, We talk about how they almost sold the company early days and what actually happened there. And now we talk about post-Netflix, how Mark's an investor, what he looks for when it comes to ideas, how to actually find a product that can be so disruptive you can build something of true worth and significance like how he built Netflix. Um, this was a crazy interview, guys. You're going to learn just so much. Um, I'm really excited to share this with you. I feel very lucky to be able to speak to incredible founders like Mark. So that's it from me, guys. If you are enjoying these episodes, please do take the time to leave us a review wherever you're listening These are 100% free. We work so hard. like We have dedicated team members to try and find these incredible founders for you guys. Please do share this with a friend. Please do check out our other content on founder.com. We're working very, very hard to build a brand that truly helps a lot of people at scale. Tens of millions every single week. All right, that's it from me, guys. Now let's jump to the show. Well, Mark, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Uh, The first question that I ask everyone that comes on is, how did you get your job?
1: (laughs) Well, I've never counted on someone else to uh, get my job. I usually try and create my own. Uh, And unfortunately, that usually doesn't come with very good pay or very good benefits, but it does have flexible hours and you usually uh, get along pretty well with your boss. Awesome. So... How did you
0: find yourself doing the work you're doing today? Obviously, you're very well known as as one of the co-founders of Netflix, and I've heard your story, read your incredible book, that would have work, and uh, even heard you speak at an EO event. Um, (gasps) So uh, yeah, look, really, really interested to hear how all that started, but I'd love to go back to humble beginnings, because I know you've started, like you've been an entrepreneur for over 40 years, you've started many successful companies.
1: Uh, so yeah, I'd love to hear. Yeah, you know, now entrepreneurship, to, to your, partly to your credit and also partly to your advantage is like a thing. You know, uh, uh, back when I was starting, there was really no such thing as an entrepreneur. I mean, sure, there were entrepreneurs, but they didn't have a name. Uh, they certainly weren't movies and podcasts and magazines about them. Um, there, you certainly could major in entrepreneurship at your university. So then, if anything, it was a compulsion. It was this constant feeling that, why doesn't this work better? Or why isn't there a way to? Or why isn't there someone who could? And then realizing that the best way to get those things was to kind of create them yourself. And and I was also fortunate that I was able to start as an entrepreneur in terms of real entrepreneurship um, within um, a framework of support. So for example, the first two companies that I started were within larger companies. There were companies who were saying, we need to get into a different business. Uh, Randolph, uh, get us in the mail order business. Uh, Randolph, get us in the magazine business which required me to kind of go in and figure these things out. But at the time, with the support of a paycheck, someone else worrying about uh, did the telephones work and did I have um, a roof over my head. I see. So um, so you were an
0: entrepreneur for your first two startups? Is that correct? Yeah.
1: You know, the very first time, the, my very first real job, the first job where I actually had a phone and a desk, um, I was... You know, now they kind of call it chief of staff, but a better way to think about it, I was a gopher who just followed the CEO around the company all day with a notepad, uh, keeping him honest with the commitments he'd made and people honest for the commitments they'd made to him. But this was in a music publishing company, and I was lucky that I got to see every part of the company, and I got to see how the CEO dealt with things, how he spent his time, um, how he dealt with his employees, how he dealt with his uh, board members. It was useful that way, but one of the quote unquote divisions in the company was a mail order division. And at the time, it was purely um, two sentences that said, for a list of more great Cherry Lane songbooks, send a self-addressed stamped envelope to so-and-so. And for some bizarre reason, I wanted that job which purely consisted of when one of those requests came in, I would Xerox the list of more great Cherry Lang songbooks and stuff it in the self-addressed stamped envelope and mail it out. And when an order came in, I would pick, pack and ship the order. But again, I was curious and I began experimenting and I began saying, what happens if I do a double-sided or a four-page insert or a catalog or mailing? And little by little over several years built this up into a pretty substantial division in the company. So it wasn't just the first startup. It was also kind of my intro to direct marketing, which ended up being um, a pretty critical part of my success in Silicon Valley and certainly a pretty critical part of what happened with Netflix. But, you know, from there, same thing happened. I went to a company who was, um, they were in the mail order business and wanted to get into the publishing business, and there I started a magazine for them called Mac User Magazine. Again, required learning all these new things, uh, and it was all, Then I went to a company that was in California, and that was the uh, the key place because I ended up at a big software company called Borland, launching their direct marketing business, um, and that was fascinating because partly. This was doing direct marketing at a different scale, a different order of magnitude, eventually becoming about 40% of the company's revenue. But more importantly, now I was, well, I was almost in Silicon Valley, and I was in the right place at the right time when all of a sudden, one evening, one of the engineers came into my office and goes, let me put something onto your computer. And it was the browser from, uh, from Champaign-Urbana University. That was the first web browser. Um, And I was blown away, blown away how cool this was. But more importantly, my little direct marketing insect mind went, this, this is direct marketing on steroids, the opportunities to reach people, to create a personalized experience for every single individual. I said, my gosh, people are going to make a fortune selling things uh, this way and I had no idea even close to how right um, I would end up being. Yeah, wow, crazy. So um, a lot
0: of people know the story and your story, but for those that don't, I'd love to get a bit of context around how this idea of of, of Netflix came about. And then I'd, I know you've recently working on launching a podcast. I'd love to talk about that. And Really, the concept of ideas, because there's a lot of people that have ideas for a business, um, and there's a lot of people that just sit on those ideas. And I think you know you're an incredible example of someone just showing people that it doesn't matter like how good the idea is or whether it's a good idea or a bad idea, you really have to see it through and you just never know, right? So I'd love to talk about that with you. So yeah, just before we jump in though, I'd love a bit of context, like how did Netflix start?
1: Well, you know, after uh, Borland, I ended up starting a small software company with two friends of mine. uh, And we sold that not long afterwards to a much bigger software company called Pure Atria. And the reason that's significant in the Netflix story is that Puratria had been started and was being run by a gentleman named Reed Hastings. And we all went to work in this big new software company, and the rest of my team was ended up in the basement in a business unit. But Reed grabbed me to make me his head of corporate marketing at Puratria. So I went from the cerebral startup job to boom, all of a sudden I'm running marketing for this multinational huge software company. But the beauty was Reed and I lived in the same town and I was reporting to him and Reed and I began commuting to work together. And we became pretty good friends. And then about six months later, uh, Pure Atria was acquired. And this time, uh, I wasn't so lucky, at least in terms of the same way, but this time I was gonna lose my job because they already had a head of marketing. And Reed was gonna lose his job because they already had a CEO. So the two of us were going, okay, what's next? And for me, that was simple. I was going to start another company, Um, of course. Reed wasn't so sure. He thought he wanted to go change the world of education. He was going to become a philanthropist, but he wanted to get a degree, a higher degree in education, so he had some credibility. So he was going to go back to school, but he wanted to keep a finger in this entrepreneurship game. So we came to an arrangement that he would be my angel, I would start and run the company, but we needed the idea. And that's what led us to both being in a car, commuting back and forth from our homes in Santa Cruz, California, up and over the Santa Cruz mountains every day to our offices in Sunnyvale. And we would pitch ideas to each other or more frequently, I would pitch ideas to read. And this was not like I was a video guy, you know, who I could tell you all the great French directors or anything like that. I was normal. I watched Lion King trying to get a cranky kid to fall asleep. That was my movie experience, but, I was a direct marketing guy. I was someone who saw the promise in the internet. I was a believer in personalization. So I was pitching ideas around that. And as you, as you probably know from, you know, that will never work from the book. I pitched in the idea of personalized shampoo, where you cut off a lock of your hair, you mail it in. Our team of ace hair scientists formulate the custom blend and you subscribe to it and Reed he was the analytical one. He would find the holes. He'd challenge me. He'd push me on the numbers and the ideas would get rejected. And then I'd come in the next day full of fire and I'd pitch him custom dog food, you know, for your breed, for its climate, activity level, gender, whatever. And he'd shoot that down. I pitched probably a hundred ideas. And one of the ideas I pitched him was video rental by mail. Uh, And... At the time, this is in 1997, spring of 1997. Back then, when you watched a movie, as you probably remember, it came on a VHS cassette, those big, heavy, expensive. And so it didn't take a lot for me to realize not going to work, and that got rejected too. So the breakthrough, if there was one, uh, came a few months later when Reed got in the car and said he'd heard about this new technology called the DVD you know thin and light and it wasn't like if we had read about dvd we would have said aha video rental by mail it was more like you know when you're cleaning up your house and you you find under the couch a little piece from a jigsaw puzzle and you go oh that's the missing piece from that puzzle i was trying to solve 2 months ago and that's how it was for us that dvd could be the missing piece to make that video rental by mail idea work. And then here's the, this is what separates my opinion of an entrepreneur from anyone else is rather than saying, cool idea, let's think this through or let's go and work on a business plan or let's put our pitch deck together or any other crap. We just, I'm thinking, just turned the car around right in the middle of the commute, went back down to Santa Cruz to see if we could validate this idea. And we went to look for a DVD, and it was in test market, so there weren't any, so we settled for buying a used music CD. Um, Went a few doors down and bought a little gift envelope, like you put a a greeting card in. Uh, Addressed it to Reed's house in Santa Cruz, bought a stamp and popped it in the slot and then went to work. And then the very next morning, when Reed came to pick me up uh, to go to work, he just had a little envelope with an unbroken CD that had gotten to his house in less than 24 hours for the price of a stamp, yeah. and if uh, if there's an, as they say in screenwriting, an inciting event, um, that was probably it. Yeah. Wow. So, then what happened next? <laughs> so then this again. This is 1997. So uh, we after a little bit of, I did a little bit of research into this uh, and we got to the point that every entrepreneur gets to where you go, "I, uh, I can't learn anymore. I mean, there's no DVD rental by companies I can look at. There's no data on this and you've got to make that decision, you know, based on the incomplete and inconclusive or, you know, contradictory information and just decide you're going to do it. And so Reed wrote a check for $1.9 million. Uh, We raised some money from a handful of other people, including my mother. And uh, I rented a small office in Scotts Valley, California. I hired about a dozen people. We spent six months building a primitive e-commerce website, which you could throw together now in a half an hour. Um, And on April 14th, 1998, so more than 20 years ago now, we launched the company now called Netflix. Yeah,
0: it's crazy to think about. And everyone knows like, um, you know, they, they always talk about not keeping up with the times and what happened to Blockbuster um, It's, it's or, or what happened to Kodak, you know, innovation, not keeping up with the times. And that Blockbuster story is a very well-known one around how Netflix You know, just came around and just really just, um, you know, blitzed that company. So I'd love to talk around kind of, there's a couple of key stories I think are really fascinating around Amazon, almost, uh, you guys almost selling to Amazon. I'd love to hear that one. And then also almost selling to Blockbuster.
1: Yeah, those are two different kind of bookends um, (laughs) about selling the company. You know, and the first one, the Amazon one, happened pretty quickly. This was in the st- summer of 1998. So we were probably less than six months old. And back then, if you can imagine a time when Amazon only sold books, it was a bookstore. But you know, Jeff Bezos had made no secret of his aspiration to eventually be the everything store. And we were pretty sure that the path to everything would start with uh, music and video. Um, and so when he called, well, actually when his CFO called and said, you know, Jeff would love you to come up to Amazon and say hello, Reed and I were pretty sure that this was about a potential acquisition, as he decided to either to jumpstart his entry into video. And um, it was really an important trip for us because, you know, as you know, I I called the book that'll never work because. Every single person that I pitched that idea to said, that'll never work. You know, my employees, my investors, you know, my wife said, that'll never work. And they were right in a lot of ways. It was a terrible idea. But all of a sudden, six months in, Jeff Bezos, who is the king of e-commerce, is calling us up for potential acquisition. That was worth a hundred, that'll never works, that he saw something in us. Mm-hmm. So in one ways, it was this incredible validation. But, you know, we went up there, had a really interesting meeting. You know, I don't know if, you, if you've heard these stories, but back then, back then, he was in an old warehouse in a really disreputable part of Seattle. You know, there was people passed out in the doorways, there was broken windows, there was glass in the street. You went into this office, there was pizza boxes. There was three people in the same cubicle. It, it was a mess, and everyone had everyone had doors as desks. Literally, a door with a piece patched where the doorknob would be. But anyway, we make the pitch, and but and at the end, you know, on, as, as uh, the CFO is selling us out again, she's saying, you know, this is promising, but I got to set expectations that if we do something, you know, it's probably going to be in the low, you know, low eight figures kind of thing, um, which we're guessing is probably in the 14 to $16 million. And on one hand I'm going, wow, that's a lot of money for someone who's only been working on this for six months. Cause I owned at that point, like 40% of the company, but, The other thing is we had now built this working e-commerce website over six months. We had managed to find a copy of every single DVD available. We had forged deals with consumer electronics companies to put our coupons in the boxes. I mean, we thought we had this solved. And so in addition to being this validation, it was also kind of a commitment ceremony for Reed and I. Where we kind of looked each other in the eye and goes if if we want out, we can get out, but not now let's let's see what we can do really? And so dodge that bullet but you know the, um, the, the everyone called it that'll we, the book the books called that'll never work the podcast is called that'll never work. everyone said that'll never work and God damn it they were right. Uh, when we launched that company, it didn't work. You know, it took us a year and a half, year and a half of testing one thing after another to finally come up with some repeatable, scalable model that actually worked. And that's kind of what leads us to the blockbuster story, because the idea that finally worked a year and a half in was a no due dates, no late fees. Keep the discs as long, the DVDs as long as you want. When you want, mail one back and we'll replace it. Uh, and it'll be a subscription. So what a bizarre concept. And so to make it palatable, everyone got first month free. And as everyone now knows from subscription businesses, it's an interesting business model because once you get an, a, a subscriber, you have this recurring revenue. But it also means you pay all of your acquisition costs upfront and make it back over time which has the unfortunate consequence, is that success is incredibly expensive. And that's what happened. Um, This thing took off. I mean, people were flooding in, they were telling their friends, it was accelerating logarithmically. And every time a new order came in, part of me was like, oh my God, fantastic. We figured it out, we've got product market fit. On the other hand, I'm going, oh my God, we're going broke, paying, to acquire all these customers. And then the ultimate crushing blow was that this turned out to be the summer of the year 2000, which those of us of a certain age remember was when the dot the original dot-com bubble burst. And almost overnight, it went from this environment where raising money was as simple as walking out on the highway with a sign, and you, you have semaphore flags, and the truck will back up and pour the money in your driveway to all of a sudden, the trucks are putting their head down and speeding past you, can't raise money, especially if you have .com in your name. And we were screwed. And that led us to decide we have to take that classic route of pursuing strategic alternatives as they euphemistically call it, which basically means we got to sell this sucker and fast. So that, that led us to the obvious uh, strategic alternative, which was a fateful day when we flew to uh, Dallas, Texas one morning uh, and ushered up to the Renaissance Tower to try and pitch ourselves to Blockbuster. We went in, into this meeting um, and it was so hard to get the meeting that the very fact we had got it, we said, we're, we're there. Uh, it's so self-evidently a great deal they were going to combine the businesses that they'll run the stores they'll run the we're on the online lots of synergies to accelerate both of them no brainer our problems are solved and at first it was going great because they were asking all the good questions you know leaning in and then they asked how much and um reed we rehearsed and reed leans in and goes uh 50 million dollars uh and basically they they laughed at us. They laughed at us because of the hubris that in the heat of a dot-com meltdown, this upstart direct mail video business would dare be worth $50 million. And it was crushing because we had thought this was the deus ex machina that was going to or in the movies this was all of a sudden when the heroes are in deep trouble all of a sudden they're plucked from danger nope now not only was blockbuster not going to save us they were going to compete with us and it kind of reinforced for reed and i that you know as my my dad used to sometimes say he goes you know sometimes the only way out is through that we were going to have to uh, solve this one ourselves yeah i see and that's when you
0: eventually reinvented the business model to what Netflix is today right
1: yeah and Blockbuster which at the time had 60,000 employees and 9,000 stores you know is now down to one store left wow
0: that's crazy so I'd love to know like during those
1: years what were some of your biggest lessons of building Netflix I think what was reinforced over and over and over for me was that there's no such thing as a good idea. You know, everyone loves the epiphany that uh, they, you know, you get the two guys who can't make the rent and then instantly you've got Airbnb, but it doesn't work like that. That um, ideas are starting points that they're almost, um, they're almost universally bad. It tra- uh, t- t- uh, this morning I was taping a, a one episode of, of the podcast, speaking with an entrepreneur, and he's had this idea, and he's had it in his head for eight years, and he's never misses an opportunity to tell his friends it's a great idea, and they, of course, go, gosh, Ed, that's a great idea. But it, he's never collided that idea with reality. And it was kind I mean, I ha- you know, you have to deliver tough love sometime. And you're going, for God's sake, I don't know if it is a good idea or a bad one, but you're never going to know that until you try it. And that's what I realized at the beginning. You know, when I said that, you know, at the beginning Netflix didn't work, we tried so many things. And At the beginning, I was this perfectionist and we, were, we had lots of ideas, but the tests would be intricate. They'd take three weeks to put together and then they'd fail and you'd say, shit, I just wasted three weeks. And then you accelerate and accelerate and pretty soon you're doing, multiple tests in a single day and they're sloppy and awful and but you realize that it doesn't make a difference because that three weeks of perfect custom photography and lovingly crafted copy is not going to make the idea work but if it is a good idea then no matter how bad it is the broken links the misspellings it still resonates that so the lesson to get to the point here was that it was never about having good ideas. It was about this system and this process and this culture that we created to test thousands of bad ideas. And I think that, that velocity is what really helped Netflix move so quickly. Um, And it also informs the culture because when you start off with the premise that every idea is a bad one, that you have no idea in advance if it's gonna work, it, it democratizes the company because that great idea could come from any place from anybody it's not just that the ceo has to be the smartest guy in the room you come in with this data driven culture which is not about i believe but more about the data shows and that's kind of the key anyway that that's the uh, that's my that's my long story about it's all ideas suck they don't count so figure out how to test them that's the uh, that's the genius
0: When it comes to, uh, I guess, you now invest in a lot of companies and a lot of ideas, um, what are the qualities that you look for in the founder or the idea? And is it the idea
1: or the founder that you usually invest in? Oh, no, there's three important things in a company that I look for. So first is the founder, then second would be the founder, and then third is the founder. And then 80th is the idea. Ideas do not count for anything. I'm serious. All the work people do into taking their idea, doing all this research and planning, and what's the TAM, and then uh, what a waste of time. Nothing ever survives that collision with the real customer. It's a starting point. So you're looking for someone who has the persistence to keep going. You're looking for someone with the creativity to run into the dead end and say, what have I learned from this dead end and which direction do I go next? You're looking for somebody with the confidence that he'll attract other people to come with him and her, him or her, to help them, to lead them. I mean, you're looking for these very, very ephemeral things and none of it has to do with, look how good my idea is. It's all about the person or actually more common these days about the team. So that's what I'm almost exclusively looking, looking at. Do you think people need to move
0: to Silicon Valley uh, to, to be successful or if you want to build a successful
1: tech startup, especially in like today's economy? So, you know, there's two ways to answer that. The first one is that everyone has some excuse. Uh, and I've heard them all. I need to graduate, I need a computer science degree, I need to have funding, I need to be in Silicon Valley. And so from that perspective, absolutely not. You can start a company anywhere, anywhere in the world. Uh, The internet is a tremendously democratizing force. And I, I do a lot of work with early stage entrepreneurs and I see stuff springing up all over the world. It's long since stopped being the domain of Silicon Valley. That said, there are certain advantages to doing it in a tech center, in a startup center and Silicon Valley isn't the only one. And that largely comes from the rapidity with which ideas spread in those communities. That for example, if you are really into startups um, and you have all kinds of neat ideas, but you live in Hartford, Connecticut and you go to lunch with your buddies You're there all excited about startups, but they're all talking about their law problems and their banking problems and their insurance problems. And that's fine. When you come to here, Silicon Valley, around the table, everyone works at a startup. Everyone's into it. And so you get feedback. You say, I have this idea. And rather than your friends going, sounds interesting. People are saying, oh no, that's been tried. Oh, but have you thought about this? Oh, this person has talked about that. He might be interested in helping you. And that is a that's a pretty positive environment for getting support for these things. So necessary? Absolutely not. If that's the excuse for you not doing it, you are deluding yourself. But listen, all things being equal, if you can be here, it makes it a little bit easier. Yeah. Because the talent is so good, right? The culture is so pervasive that I mean, you need something, you need an opinion. It is here and you bump into it all the time. I mean, now if you're seeking it out, even if you are in Hartford, great. You're getting a Zoom call. With enough persistence, you can be on a call with anyone in the world. But that's different. And COVID, of course, has obviously complicated a lot of this. But under general terms, being out to lunch with your friends and having every single person working at a startup or a tech company. It's a pretty powerful way to educate yourself really, really quickly about what the current trends are, what's possible, what's being tried, what's being done, who's working on it. Um, It makes funding a lot easier and a lot faster. But again, I do not want to be the guy who says you can't do it unless you're here or in New York or in Boston or in name the city around the world that has it. Um, So the lesson here is, if you have an idea, the most important thing is to start, no matter where you are, and no matter what's going on in your life. But yes, is it a bit easier here? The same way it is getting an acting job in Hollywood, but you can do it any place. Yep. That makes sense. You talked about trends. Interesting to
0: me. Um, it's a real hot button for people. I think people are always looking for business trend, like like things that are trending because there's this idea if, the, if you start a business around something that is trending, that it'll be hot, higher chance of success. I'm curious where, if anybody's watching this right now, perhaps they have multiple ideas or they don't even have an idea. They say, I wanna start a business. I love that idea of starting a business, but I haven't come up with a good enough idea yet, which is probably a common one that you hear. What was your advice around picking that idea or looking at trends and sourcing ideas?
1: You know, there's certainly lots of ways to come up with ideas. And, and I'm not averse to looking for trends, you know, because uh, business change is like geologic erosion in a lot of ways and that you see 98% of the movement in like 2% of the time. And so if you can see that something is about to slide, something's about to slip or change that'll dramatically change the ability of your idea to get traction, you'd be foolish not to want to uh, take advantage of that. It's absolutely true that some ideas are right for certain times. And if you have the talent to recognize that you're, time has come. Absolutely. But there's lots of other ways. You can certainly look at business model innovation. You know, I was a big fan of two-sided marketplaces for a while because one after another, different problems were being addressed with two-sided marketplaces. And I thought that was really, really fascinating. I mean, certainly look at subscriptions being applied um, to the internet. I mean, we were probably one of the first when we did it at Netflix and That was because I had spent 15, 20 years as a circulation person. So I knew that. But now, of course, you went through this period of about 10 years where we saw Netflix of every single noun in the dictionary. Netflix of neckties, Netflix of glasses, Netflix of tripods, you know, everything. But, and 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 so that's that's another interesting way to kind of uh, go after ideas. But, you know, the easiest one, which is the one that I did when I was young, was just, you know, you look for pain. You go, what sucks? What's broken? What can I do differently? That has never failed me when it comes time to uh, looking for uh, ideas. Yeah.
0: I love the concept um, of painkillers versus vitamins. Like,
1: mm-hmm. uh, yeah, like you really want to find a painkiller. Yeah. And, and the thing is, once you've trained yourself, it's, it's almost automatic, once you train yourself, you see the world as this imperfect place and see problems, then you can't help yourself. and It's almost frustrating in a way. And you recognize and you go, gosh, how could this still be? A, how, why are we still doing it this way? And once you've gotten to that point, you are, you're on your way. Hmm.
0: So why do you think uh, having a, a bad idea is a good thing?
1: Or it's, it's not always a bad thing? having an idea is a great thing and who cares if it's good or bad? Seriously. Um, let's put it the the other way around is that too many people are searching for the good idea and they're waiting for the idea, which is self evidently right. And if you wait for the idea to be self evidently right, you'll wait forever. Or when you finally is clear that it's going to work, well, I guarantee that someone's already um, been there before you. You've got to take the idea and recognize that I have no idea if it's good or bad. That there is no really, there's no such thing as a good idea. I mean, I can't, this, this last three weeks is for me, with the companies that I'm either working with or invested in, three of them have all of a sudden had the revelation that their original idea that they had built their company on was not the right one, but they've seen the right one, and and even look at the news with uh, with Slack uh, last week, or was it this week? God, internet time. But you know that that company started because they were a gaming company, and Slack was just their internal tool. That happens all the time. The idea is a starting place. You know, so much. You know, on the on the podcast, I'm talking to entrepreneurs who are early and late, and so many of them are at that point where they're saying, where do I go from here? As if they should have it all figured out. And a large piece of it is giving people the confidence that that process of trying, of seeing what works and what doesn't, that's the journey. You're learning more and more and more and, I, and you keep it up, eventually, you, know, you get there. And how do you
0: cultivate that mindset? Do you think it's something that, um, and the mindset of, of that persistence of never giving up and and is it something that you're? Do you think given over time, or something that develops over time, or something that you just are born with? Um, how do you cultivate that? Is it something that you had originally? No, I think it's
1: well for me. Yeah, I've always kind of been that way, but I've really come to believe that with practice, you develop that skill. You gain the confidence that you can try something and the world is not going to end. I mean, I think there's some fundamental emotional reason people don't want to try things they're not certain are going to work. I mean, they're scared of failure. They're scared of being chastised for trying something that didn't work. They have some misguided notion that the people who get written about as the famous entrepreneurs got everything right, but it's exactly the opposite. But once you try something and it doesn't work, you go, wow, that was that was really interesting, and it, but you have to do that on a small scale at first. If you're a novice at it and you have to bet the company, you're, that's 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 too much. So you start small. Ideally, you start when the stakes are extremely low. And you know, I was lucky enough that I started doing this before it really mattered. You know, I was doing it on things at university and I was doing it at things before then when the consequences of getting it wrong were minuscule and little by little, you begin to recognize, okay, this is how this trial and error and trial and error and trial and error actually works. And not only is it not scary, it's, that's the reason, that's the fun part. That's the compulsion about it. What about
0: niches? And, you know, you talked about TAM, like total just like market, Like, do you like big markets? You like niches? Like, do people need to go for bigger markets, niches? Like, what's your
1: take there? It depends, and that's going to—I know that's an awful thing to say—but one of the things I've realized is that let's okay. Let here's okay. Let's try this one out. New analogy. Okay, someone says, "Well, um, you want to be an actress." should you only go to Hollywood? And you go, well, if you really are going to want to be in movies, yes. But if you want to be an actress, no, you can be an actress in community theater. And I think the same thing goes for, st- and probably have a much better time at it. So if your goal as an actress was, I really love creating characters and being those characters and communicating it to people, you'll get a much better opportunity to do that where you live in the evening after your regular job. And you'll be happy as a clam. But of course, if you want to do that and make a career out of it, you're going to have to be better at it and play at a bigger scale. And I think startups is the same thing. Um, I do. I want to dispel the myth that it's all or nothing. I play in a different league. I mean, because I've been doing this for 40 years, and I'm here in the hardest looking valley, and I work with people who are venture investors who. They're doing it because they want big returns. So yes, there, when you're evaluating that game, you do have to look for big total addressable markets because you have to leave room for the fact that it's going to be hard and you need, need room to make errors. But if your objective is to have the joy of entrepreneurship, of being your own boss, of building something from nothing, of perhaps creating a lifestyle business, or perhaps just having the income That you can work from anywhere, that you can take the time off when you want, then it's almost the opposite. You don't want the huge markets. You want the niches that the big players are staying away from. So you want to make sure we frame this question correctly. It is not all or nothing. I know a lot of people who very purposely build lifestyle businesses and they pick niches where They can operate without the worry about being crushed, without the requirement that they fundraise, without the requirement that they grow or die. Um, And that's a perfectly acceptable path too. And the thrills and challenges um, are as intense there as they are when you're doing it in a much larger playing ground. Yeah, no, I think you really articulated that well.
0: Thank you, Mark. So um, when it comes to your skills that you learned from founding Netflix, uh, like, what are they that you're using for your newest project?
1: Oh, that's a great question. Thank you. Um, I was going to go someplace else with that question, but that's actually perfect. So th- when, I, when I thought to myself it might be fun to do a podcast, um, I didn't think about it too much. I read a little bit to understand what was going on, but there was too many questions. What is this gonna be about? Is anyone gonna care? Um, How long should they be? What's interesting? What's a good guess? All of these questions, because it had to be personal to me. So rather than thinking it through, rather than writing a business plan, rather than doing a pitch deck, I figuratively turned the car around and drove down and bought the CD. I just started. I literally took four people who had been emailing me saying, I have some questions. And I said, I'm happy to get on the phone with you for an hour. Would you mind if I taped it? And I did four of these. And this was my beta version one. And wow, did I learn a lot. I learned that if I took 30 minutes to, fig, to grok what they were even talking about, that it was boring. That if I didn't have someone who was reasonably high energy, it didn't work. But then I realized what did work. I realized people who had very interesting stories and interesting problems, that people would empathize with them. But that was only in the first four. I had technical challenges. My recording wasn't good. I was using the wrong technology. So then I said, okay, I fixed some things. Let's do four more wow, that I also learned a ton there. And then I did four more. And so I was learning by doing. That is something that I've learned my entire life is the best way for me to understand something. The best way to figure it out, just do it. And I would not be one of the people who was there to preach that to people but not have it be my own way of solving problems. And I think it shows um, hopefully when you get a chance, if anyone gets a chance to listen to the podcast, that by iterating, I was able to make what I think were some pretty counterintuitive choices about what the subject matters were. I had the opportunity to have big guests. I mean, I do know a lot of people But I realized the thing that's missing from the podcast universe is someone like myself who has 40 years experience actually helping people who are, you know, similar to the people who are listening to this, who are starting companies, who are thinking about starting companies, who are struggling with things like, how do I balance my work without having my marriage fall apart? How do I deal with the fact that I'm at odds with my co-founder? How do I know when to pivot? How do I know that this bump I'm getting from COVID is going to last? I mean, these are things everyone struggles about, and it turns out these conversations I get to have with people are just so exciting and so interesting, and that's to me. the one thing I don't yet know is whether anyone on the outside will like them as well, but eh, who cares? I love it. That's awesome. yeah, look, I think it's interesting you say
0: that because um Funnily enough, we're we're starting to play around with with this idea. We we interview crazy successful entrepreneurs like yourself. Like you know, I was reading about your latest exit around your other companies and like all, all these things you've done, right? And and sometimes, um, well, feedback we've got is actually that it's it's hard to relate. Like it's it's really hard to relate, and they like to hear from people that are in the trenches or actually doing it right now where they're just at the early stages and you just hear like, it's just so much more relatable and there's something really powerful around that. So I think you're onto something.
1: Yeah. You know, one of the things, you know, when I wrote the book, you know, partly it was because I wanted people to hear the untold story of the starting of Netflix. But the other fantastic thing is I've realized that, all those tips and tricks and secrets that I've learned over 40 years as being an entrepreneur, and we've talked about some of them today, but those aren't just tips and tricks and secrets that someone who is raising money and starting a Silicon Valley company use. They're the exact same approaches that anybody who has a dream um, uses someone who says, I would love to figure out a way to get an apartment I can afford in the central business district. I would love in a way to figure out how I can get a job in that industry. I mean, the approach is the same. And I think that's kind of one of the things you kind of want to have. I want to have come through in the podcast too, is that this is not look how smart I was. This was the things that I'm doing. Anybody can do. Anyone can use these. You don't need to go and build a company you sell for a couple billion dollars to Google. You can use it to find something that you really enjoy doing um, and that you can make a living at. And if that happens, then I think uh, I and you, we've then we've done a really good job.
0: Yeah, I agree. That's where the real gold is at, to, to be able to really uh, help somebody and make an impact on their growth
1: or development? I have a, my brother is an investment banker. He's pretty successful. He's like a managing director at a bank. Um, And he went to the same university that my two of my kids went to. So he goes there to recruit for the bank. And I go there to give talks about entrepreneurship, about careers in entrepreneurship. And we often joke that we are fighting for people's souls. He's trying to convince them to move to New York and be investment bankers. I'm trying to convince them to move to San Francisco to live six to an apartment and eat ramen. And I gotta say, he is considerably better armed in this battle than I am. But I always think if I can find one person whose parents are going, you should be an investment banker and I can, can give them the courage to go, no, my heart is really in being an entrepreneur, then then I've done something good. Yeah, I love it. So um,
0: we have to work towards wrapping up. I, I could speak to you all day, Mark, um, but yeah, we're mindful of your time as well. So two more questions. One, sure. where do you see Netflix and uh, the, the streaming industry going? And then uh, the last one is, Where can people find out more about yourself, your work, your book, and also your podcast that is coming out?
1: Let's talk about streaming first. So the first thing I've got to say, as I look at Disney Plus and HBO and um, Peacock and you name it, and everybody rushing into the streaming field is I feel vindicated and validated Uh, Netflix has been doing streaming since 2007. So for the last 13 years, been laboring uh, by themselves to demonstrate that this is not just a viable, but a compelling way to consume television and movies. And now I think the world has acknowledged that this is in fact the case, that this is the better way um, to consume entertainment. And so the fact that we had a part in pioneering that I think is I'm tremendously proud of and excited about. Uh, I think that there's not a winner take all. I think I watch entertainment on Netflix, of course, but I also watch it on Amazon and Apple and Hulu and HBO. And I do so without the slightest feeling of unloyalty. There's great content coming from all those places. And I think what we are all getting is tremendous choice as consumers. And that's a good thing. I think having competitors against Netflix is fantastic because it will keep Netflix on its toes. There's nothing that drives innovation and a firm commitment to serving a customer like having competition. Uh, I fundamentally think that we are still at the beginning. Uh, Netflix, 200 million subscribers, which even saying that blows me away. 200 million subscribers, but YouTube, you know, 2 billion plus Uh, uh, internet enabled smartphones in the world, 4 billion plus we have a long way to go uh, before we have started to see this business maturing. There's room for plenty and we'll continue to have to innovate uh, to get there. It's gonna be really, really interesting. And so if you do now segue in quite naturally into your second question, So if you are curious, if you do want to find out about the podcast, if you want to uh, read what I've written, uh, if you'd like to be directed to a place where you can get, that will never work. The best place to start is my website, which is markrandolph.com, and Mark is spelled with a C, and Randolph is with a ph at the end, Um, and I do try and pontificate periodically about my thoughts about what's happening, not just in streaming and current events, but more fundamentally about what I believe are these core things that can give us all the confidence to start and then give us some of the skills to increase the likelihood that we're being successful. And more importantly, inspiration that this is a great way to spend your time and that success is not the ultimate goal. It's really doing something you love and doing something you do well. Amazing. Well, look, Mark, thank you so much
0: for your time. You're very generous with it and uh, so much gold shared. I think you've really laid out a blueprint on how to come up with a business idea, how to know what to work on, what what a successful business idea perhaps might look like and so much more. And you've shared an incredible story. Uh, Congratulations on all of your success. Thank you again for taking the time. And uh, yeah, we can wrap there.
1: Well, thank you. This was really fun and um,
0: good luck to you. Thank you.